Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another fun episode of Emergency Trauma Mama podcast. It's been a little while since I've made a podcast, but what I want to talk about today is shock, and we're going to be talking about it from a pathophysiological point of view, almost more at the cellular level, rather than just saying hypovolemic shock is a result of blood loss in our trauma patients. Um, whether it's internal or external, doesn't matter. Um, however, we're going to talk about shock in a way that maybe you've talked about um, five or six years ago when you were in school, or perhaps if you've taken the, the most recent edition of TNCC or EMPC, of course, we cover it in that. Um, but my point of view is over the years, having taught just a whole slew of different people and personalities, no matter if they're EMS and they're working in the field or they're nurses or PAs, nursing students, it really doesn't matter. What I've noticed is there's just not that big of a grasp of this concept so that when you do have that patient that rolls into your trauma recess room and they're in shock in that moment, what are you thinking about? And it's important to understand shock from a pathophysiological standpoint because not only is it going to drive your care, but it's also going to help you cue into certain things perhaps that a patient's doing in order to compensate. So remember, we call all those lovely things that a patient does to help keep themselves alive in shock a compensatory mechanism. So when we talk about compensatory mechanisms, it's very interesting because, of course, our adult population is very different than our pediatric population. In fact, pediatric population can pretty much have its own lecture all to themselves because they are just so different. Kids are so different anatomically. They're different in how they respond. Um, again, remember that they children can compensate until they crash. So the four C's of children is that. Children can compensate until they crash. And that's exactly what you'll see. However, we're just going to kind of focus more on our basic adult population for today in in the interest of time. So what is shock? Well, obviously, there is inadequate tissue perfusion. So your metabolic needs are not being met by the body uh, for whatever reason. In this instance, we'll just say it's a patient who is bleeding. So they're bleeding out, whether it be for you know blunt trauma, penetrating trauma, regardless. There are things within the body that we need and When your cells aren't getting what they need at that cellular level, remember your ATP and your Krebs cycle? Yeah. So obviously your mitochondrial shift is like, wait, why am I not getting 34 ATP? Uh, I used to have all of these things to help me do all the things that I need to do, break down fats, carbohydrates, and proteins. And then that high ATP yield comes from the energy within, right? You've got the energy production from mitochondria. And all of those things are happening as I'm speaking right now within my own body, but I'm not in shock. So remember, 
what happens to your patient when you have a loss of these things? Because we, we lose energy. We, we shift from aerobic to anaerobic. So rather than having 34 ATP, when we're in anaerobic, we're functioning around 2 or so ATP. So, and that all goes back to your glucose stores and all of that. Um, so you're not getting enough oxygen. You're not perfusing. Uh, you know, we always say, look, you know, look at the most distal point of your patient. And that's where you should be looking at for cap refill. For instance, with neonates, I always stick my thumb on the bottom of their foot. Of their, you know, that will really tell me how far behind the eight ball we are in terms of cap refill. If you're doing it up by their, obviously, if you're doing it in their tiny little fingernails, is that really going to give you the very best estimate of their cap refill? No, because they're so much closer to the heart. So in essence, it's like false advertising. Uh, so I always, with my kiddos, I always use the bottom of the foot because it's the most distal point. And if they're shunting, I'm going to know it right away. So, of course, this shock is a very dynamic process. And when your cells are hypoperfused, so they're not getting enough oxygen at the cellular level, then what happens? So, again, like I mentioned with the Krebs, you're supposed to have 34 ATP. Let's say you just got shot in the right chest. So you're actively exsanguinating on the ground. There's about a half a liter on the scene. So you're not quite getting enough oxygenation and tissue perfusion, right? And we know that our body needs us for homeostasis. So, and of course it affects the sodium-potassium pump. So remember, heart rate times stroke volume equals cardiac output. So typically what we see, what's the easiest thing that most patients can do, cardiac patients aside, um, to try to get more blood flow to the more distal regions when you're, when you're actively losing blood? Well, they can jack up their heart rate. So tachycardia, right? So we see a lot of these patients, they can roll in with a heart rate of 120. Now, side note, of course, there's a caveat for everything. And remember with your geriatric patients, or it doesn't even have to be geriatric or elderly patients, a lot of people are on beta blockers now um, in their 40s and their 50s for whatever reason. So not that you're going to know that all the time, but for them, are they going to be able to have that compensatory response and tack up to 120, 130? No. So Again, knowing some of that patient's history, if you can extrapolate that info, whether it's from EMS or the wife or whomever's on scene, it's super helpful um, because we know heart rate times stroke volume equals cardiac output. It should be, you know, four to six liters, boom, 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 boom. However, if you're actively bleeding out, you have inadequate perfusion, you've got hypoxic cells, you've got energy deficit. Remember, our body shifts from anaerobic, or excuse me, from aerobic to anaerobic um, with our Krebs cycle. And so then we've got a disruption with our cell membrane, right? Our dysfunction with the sodium potassium pump, that's not working out very well. And then at some point, we're going to have what's called vasoconstriction, right? But really, understanding who, what, when, why, where, how does that happen, 
is very, very important. So, for instance, you know where your baroreceptors are located in the carotid sinus and in the aortic arch. So, those two areas are very, very sensitive um, to the stretch of the arterial walls to denote if there's a lack of blood or less blood than there should be. The baroreceptors are basically going to be the ones that say, hey, you know what? I better activate the sympathetic nervous system because I'm not feeling like I have quite the normal amount of blood circulating through my system that I normally do in order to keep all my cells happy and full of oxygen and perfusing. So therefore, I better do something, which in turn starts the epi and norepinephrine in the cardiac activity and you have constriction and then you hopefully have a rise in their heart rate and tachycardia. Remember again, if you're on calcium channel blockers or you're on beta blockers, hey man, if they're 80, that's probably tacky for them. (laughs) So just keep that in mind. It depends on the patient. But that's what we would see with someone who is not, not on any um, meds that would alter their um, blood pressure. So then in turn, we also have the adrenal gland response, which again comes from the SNS, the sympathetic nervous system that stimulates that fight or flight response. And of course, your adrenal glands are, I like to refer to them as the two little caps that sit on top of the kidneys. So that those adrenal glands are the ones that secrete the epinephrine and the norepinephrine. And what their job is to stimulate uh, the muscles and they will also um, produce a positive inotropic effect. In, in effect, they also will again bump up that heart rate. And then you also have peripheral vasoconstriction. So another reason why our patients are coming in shocky to the recess room and they're all clamped down. And so when you hear, if you're a newer nurse and you're listening to this and you're like, why are they saying clamp down? What does that mean? I don't get it. This is exactly what we're talking about here. So when patients are coming in, they're clamped down. They've got like zero vasculature because they've been bleeding out. Our lactate's 10 as they're rolling into the drama bay that's exactly the shocky patient that we're we're talking about. So everything's shunting to what's going to keep you alive. Think of that. What's going to keep you alive? What are the major vital organs? So the brain, the heart, the lungs. And if we have a little bit left over, we're going to try to get the kidney some blood. But, you know, that could go either way. Um, Which is why, of course, when we do finally transfer them to, you know, the MI or transfer them to the ICU, of course, that Foley's in and we're watching uh, for the renal response. We're seeing, are they still making urine? What's their urine output look like? Because we want to make sure that from a renal perspective that they're still being perfused because we don't want our patients to go into renal failure um, from lack of hyperperfusion. So, um, again, norepinephrine, in, in addition to increasing the heart rate, vascular tone, you've got your alpha adrenergic receptor activation. And so that it's attempting to improve the blood flow throughout the body, throughout all the skeletal muscles. And then it tries to trigger, tries to give you a bump of glucose from your glucose stores as well. So again, all of that's happening like 
right quick. So in addition to the adrenal gland response, um, you got the release of catecholamines, and then you got the release of cortisol and aldosterone to raise the blood pressure. Um, so, and also to, in addition to raise the blood glucose, so that retains sodium, excretes potassium in an effort to cause more volume. So that's one thing that comes from promoting renal retention of water and sodium. So that will hopefully help bump up what little volume that our patient has left. Because remember, they're actively bleeding. They've gotten shot or stabbed or that type of thing. Okay, so one other thing that happens too within the body is the pulmonary response. So what can the lungs do to kick in to help the body try to stabilize in this shock state? So of course, the pulmonary system responds to both hypoperfusion and acidosis, right? So the respiratory rate, it, go, it goes ahead and bumps up goes up so you got tachypnea right they're breathing fast because they're trying to improve their oxygen delivery throughout their body which makes perfect sense but then what we can see of course is a metabolic acidosis because remember back to our Krebs cycle we're supposed to have 34 ATP and we're functioning with like two (laughs) Um, so what that causes of course you've got a buildup of lactic acidosis And then, of course, metabolic acidosis is stemming from your anaerobic metabolism. So basically, think of it as your gas tank. Your gas tank likes to be full, right? Well, it's not. Let's say you're you're creeping on that E and you only know that you've got 30 miles left to go before you're completely out. And that's where we are with the shocky patient. So there's little to no gas in the tank. They're almost on empty. And now they've had the body try to kick in with some compensatory mechanisms such as tachycardia and tachypnea, um, secretion of catecholamines, epinephrine and norepinephrine, and release of cortisol and aldosterone in another effort to raise blood glucose and to promote renal retention of volume, water and sodium, if you will. So then the lungs do that. And then last but not least, you have a cerebral response. And what's what, what do you think that has to do with autoregulation, right? Because we know that the brain's responsible for shunting too. So cerebral autoregulation is going to it's going to promote constant cerebral blood flow where it needs to, right? As long as the map is between 50 and 150-ish right about there. So what's probably not the most important thing in your body that is um, going to get any blood if you're if you're running low, your tank's almost on E, probably the gut, right? So there's your your cerebral response will start shunting from everywhere possible. Um, however, if your map falls before, you know, remember if it falls be less than 50, if your map is less than 50, then you can no longer cerebral autoregulate, which is no bueno, right? Bad, bad, bad. Um, And going back to another response is the renal response. So what do the kidneys do? Well, their part in this role of compensatory mechanism is to improve tissue perfusion by stimulating the RAS system. So R-A-A-S, 
So remember, you've got Renin, and um, of course, that starts the production of angiotensin 1, and then it goes into the lungs and is converted to angiotensin-converting enzyme, goes into angiotensin 2, and of course, this is the most potent vasoconstrictor that we have in the body. So that's the RAS system. And in addition to this, we also get vasopressin, um, but particularly ADH, so antidiuretic hormone. So you're like, what is that? So the best way to describe antidiuretic hormone is to think of a person who, nobody that we know, of course, um, someone who has had perhaps a little bit too much alcohol the night before, right? And they forgot to drink water or take an aspirin or whatever before they laid down. They wake up and they're feeling really dizzy and they've got a headache. Um, Their blood glucose levels are low. They feel awful. Well, they're drinking Gatorade. They're trying to feel better. They're eating their McDonald's because they think greasy food's going to make it all go away. (laughs) But that antidiuretic hormone has really kicked in for this patient or the person who's drank too much the night before. Why? Because you just urinated so much the night before. So you think of a diuretic like tea and alcohol and those things will make you go, you know, you'll, you'll be peeing all night long, right? So you're, you're peeing, 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 peeing. Um, and of course, when you urinate, you're urinate, urinating out electrolytes in addition to everything else. So your antidiuretic hormone the next day is really kicked into high gear. So what is that doing? It's holding on to every little ounce of water in your body that it possibly can in an effort to bump up that volume, okay? And so that's how I describe ADH. If you ever weren't sure really how ADH works, you can study yourself um, the day that you're hungover and notice how little that you actually pee, even though you probably drank couple liters of Gatorade. Um, And you're like, why am I not peeing? Well, that's why, because the ADH has already kicked in and it's holding on to every little thing that it can. And again, your aldosterone is released, which retains sodium. Okay, what's sodium going to do? Bump up that volume and then excretes potassium. Um, So that all happens in the kidneys. And depending on where we are in our shock, there are actually different classes of shock. Um, Class 1, class 2, class 3, class 4. So what we'll do is just kind of talk briefly about those. And then I think I'm going to go ahead and just make a part 2 to this because there's so much more to say about shock. So, and for those of you who are interested in taking a board certification exam, whether it's for a certified emergency nurse or TCRN, those two for sure, I know because I've taken them, will have something of this nature on it regarding shock. Um, It will ask you different types of shock. It will ask you different classes of shock, and you will actually need to know this type of information. So uh, what do we classify as class one shock? Well, I look at it more as not just liters, although the blood loss is up to 750. 
I look at it more overall from what does my patient presentation look like? So we're just going to use a 70 kilo man for this. Okay, so class one, loss of up to 750. So that's like almost up to 15%. Pulse rate, less than 100. Okay, so not tacky. Systolic, normal. Pulse pressure, normal. Respers, 14 to 20, normal. Urine output, looks fine. Um, CNS, slightly anxious. Mental status, slightly anxious. So when we're looking at a lot of patients, what's one thing that you tend to see a lot of seasoned nurses do or somebody who's maybe been riding the rig a while and they're just like, whatever, they're faking it. Um, When patients are anxious, psychiatric issues aside, you need to investigate further. Because when they start to go down that hypoxic cascade, when they start to get, your cells are already somewhat depleted. You may not know that they got punched in the chest by their husband because they haven't told you yet. So they could have blunt cardiac injury. They could be bleeding. They could have got hit in the stomach um, from domestic violence. They're not going to tell you that all the time in the back of the rig. They're slightly anxious. So pay attention. Don't blow it off. Okay, the rest of the vital signs look pretty normal in class one, so that's okay. Class two is considered mild, so 750 to 1500 mLs of fluid loss. So now we're talking 15 to 30. So if you think about tennis scores, class one is up to 15, and then class two is 1530. Um, Pulse rate on this patient in class two is tachycardic. So they're 100 to 120. Systolic, normal. Pulse pressure, decreased. Respiratory rate, 20 to 30. So they're they're getting up there, right? Urine output, 20 to 30. So we're starting to get into some of these systemic changes, um, whether it's a renal response or adrenal gland response. Central nervous system or mental status, mildly anxious. Hmm, interesting. So between class one and class two, you really can't tell the difference, can you? You can't. So when you start to see anxiety, and it's not just, oh my gosh, I was in a car crash, I'm so scared, blah, blah, blah. That's not what I'm talking about. Pay attention. Pay attention to anxiety, because it could be leading you down a further assessment path for asking the right questions to extrapolate the right information that perhaps your patient did undergo some type of trauma. Maybe they were pushed down the stairs, okay? So there's a lot of things that can be missing that patients just aren't going to blurt out to you. So make sure you're asking the right questions. Um, Class three is moderate. So this, we're upwards to 1,500 to 2,000 mLs of blood loss. So quite significant, right? So class one is up to 15. Class two is 15 to 30. 15, 30, love. Um, Class three is 31 to 40%. And they're even more tacky now. So they're 120 to 140. Should they have the ability to get tachycardic? Because not all patients can. Remember that. Some, Some of our patients take meds that prevent that. Don't just count on that tachycardia. Touch their skins. Are they pink, warm, dry, or are they pale, cool, and diaphoretic? Um, Because those are two very different patient presentations. 
their pulse pressure is decreased, their respiratory rates increase 30 to 40. So now they're getting more tachypnic, right? So your pulmonary response is really kicking in in class three. And their urine output has slowed way down. They're like 5 to 15 mLs per hour, which is, again, no bueno. They're anxious and confused. So now we're going to start to see the confusion in, st- in, in class 3 shock, okay? So that's kind of the borderline. That's where you could see them be like talking, they're cool, hey, blah, blah, blah. And then they get real quiet. Or if you ask them a question, because they did get quiet on you and it made you nervous, hey, what's going on? Uh, And they mumble something. Or it's garbled and they're like, yeah, I got to go to the grocery store. What? (laughs) What did you say? Um, So they're anxious and confused. So their mental status is going to change again from class two to class three. Um, And then class four, of course, you know, we're pretty much past... um, like irreversible shock they've lost over 2,000 mls of blood which is greater than 40 percent their heart rate's greater than 140 their systolic blood pressures decreased their pulse pressures decreased their respiratory rate is of course greater than 35 urine output probably negligible or anuric zero nada nothing and their cns or mental status check is they're confused they're lethargic they're out at that point so that's you never want to get your patient to that point where they're irreversible shock because we know that the likelihood of us resuscitating them at that point are not good um so there's that so that being said i think what i'm going to go ahead and do is break down another shock podcast for you guys and put it together in terms of each type of shock. So obviously we're talking about hypovolemic or hemorrhagic shock, so volume problem. And then we can move on and talk a little bit more about the different types of shock. For instance, obstructive, what happens with obstructive shock, what those patients present like, and then move on to cardiogenic and distributive. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you and for downloading and y'all have a good day, evening, afternoon, and night. Bye-bye.